Well, good morning. <laughs> that was not very good. Good morning. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you are. Good to see you today. I'm glad to, to be with you. As uh, Sean said, many of you I've met. Some of you, this is a kind of new experience today. I have been out at, uh, on the Gilbert campus, primary communicator there, until January of this year. And I, uh, I, I, it sounds silly to me to say I retired from that, but it frees me up on Sundays and I've had a chance to, to be and visit the different campuses. Uh, many of you uh, understand that uh, Redemption is a multi-congregational church, that right now there are five other congregations meeting uh, in the valley and then in Flagstaff as well. So there's a congregation in Tempe at Southern Price, and then at Gilbert at uh, McQueen and Elliott, then out at uh, the Gateway Air Park. So many of you know that by Allegiant Air flies out of there. We have a campus that's there, a bilingual campus in West Mesa, and then a campus in Flagstaff. And so there are six congregations that are united under the umbrella of redemption and I have the opportunity and privilege to serve along with uh, Frank and uh, I'm trying to think of the other guys you would know, Tyler, who's been in here, serve on the leadership team uh, for these six congregations. And part of that is getting the opportunity to be able to come and to share with you. So Frank's away on a study break and uh, I know he loves that time. He's taken it for years. I've known Frank a long time. Uh, at Frank's ordination, I had the opportunity to give the, the address and, and to the charge to him. So we've got a lot of history and to see him and know that he's part of this team is important to, to me and, and hopefully to you as well. So let me pray and then we'll get after our study here this morning. Father, we open your word. We ask your spirit to open our hearts. We look at uh, perhaps the greatest of the New Testament letters. We see here a summary of the gospel in this letter of the book of Romans. God, I hope that uh, today you would uh, uh, fill us with your spirit, that you would allow this word to be a mirror, that we would look into this mirror this morning and get an accurate picture of our life, of our heart. God, we ask you to do that, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying the book of Romans. I, I looked at last night at the timetable. We are studying the book of Romans until we finish it, September 21st, 2014. We've got a long way to go. And as you know, if you've been around, we don't customarily take two years in a book. Uh, the book of Romans, this sounds almost stupid to say, is worth it. Martin Luther wrote this. It, speaking of the book of Romans, he said, it's the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. John Calvin wrote, we have gained a true understanding uh, of the epistle of the book of Romans. When you have, you have opened the door to the most profound treasures in scripture. Throughout history, uh, God has used the book of Romans to touch the hearts of not just individuals. For example, Augustine in 386 converted under the powerful testimony of the book of Romans. Martin Luther said, and you looked at it when you studied chapter 1, verse 17, it, uh, Paul wrote, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
Luther said when he understood that verse, the gates of heaven swung open and he walked through. Studying the book of Romans, John Wesley sparks the great awakening in England and in America. So it's a book that we study at length. I've got a little feedback issue going. I'm not sure if it's me. Can't, if it's me, let me know. There's something I can do. Probably go down to Starbucks and teach them there maybe or something. I don't know. But, uh, uh, Martin Luther says of the book of Romans that in this letter, part of Paul's intention is to magnify sin. Now, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 are designed by Paul to, to be an indictment, a blanket indictment of all mankind, every person that's ever lived. Look, look with me at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. That's the conclusion. This is what we're driving to. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's concluding statement now, after he's looked at all mankind, pagans, uh, moral people, religious people, there is none righteous, not even one, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. If you're somebody who circles in your Bible or you square, mark, mark these three words in verse 10. There's none righteous. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks. His blanket statement then is in chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's intention in these first three chapters is to drive you, in a sense, to a point of desperation. That, that when these really begin to sink into you, there's in your own life, as you, as you stand honestly before God, there's a sense of desperation, there's a sense of hopelessness. Certainly on your own, there's a sense of helplessness. Your inclination as you come in contact with sin is to try to do something. In fact, some of you could be here. I met a, a, a number of you who are here for the first time. And it may be that a friend invited you, and maybe they've been inviting you for a long time, but, but something clicked today. And, and it may be that there's something in your life. It may be that things are really, really, really good, and you're going, by. they've never been this good, but, but for whatever reason, I, I don't feel good. Or it may be that you're coming off of a particularly evil period and, and you're saying, I need to do something about this. That's religion. That's a natural response. The only solution is in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where Paul writes, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That, that's really the focal point of what Paul is trying to get at. So when they would read this letter, they'd receive it in the church at Rome. They would sit and they would read it through. They would not take two years and break it into segments necessarily the way we do. And for sure, you could take chapter one, two, and three and put them all together. What we're looking at today is a subset now, got to get this, of Paul's indictment of all mankind. He began, if you will, with the low-hanging fruit in chapter 1. He's saying, here are the people that we look at in a culture, and we say, this, these people are, are obviously sinful. They end up, in verse 28 of chapter 1, 
For as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to their depraved mind. And now the fruit of that, the evidence of that, is they're filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, uh, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They're inventors of evil. They're finding new apps for evil every week. They're disobedient to their parents. They're without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving. And although they know the ordinance of God, and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but, but even worse, they also give hearty approval to, to those who, who practice them. They're not just satisfied with their own ruin. They want to take you with them. And Paul turns a corner, pivots really, when he gets to chapter 2. And there's some disagreement among scholars about who the audience is in chapter 2. And, and basically breaks down in, in, into two possibilities. Two possibilities. Those are for those of you from the U of A. Two possibilities. Okay. So, uh, there are two possibilities. One, that seems to be the hot spot right there. So we'll stay over here. The, the, one is that he's writing to the moral people, to, to people who are good. Who, who they would judge themselves and their conclusion is, I'm not perfect, but I'm good. They'd be in the culture, and we kind of get this. We can, we can go anywhere, and we can get a, a group of people together, and we can say, okay, fin finish this phrase. Nobody's what? Perfect. perfect. Nobody's perfect. We get it. And, and what the Bible says is nobody's perfect. Yes, we all sin. But these would be people that say, hey, we're, we're not perfect that Paul's writing to that group. There's an, another commentator suggests, and the majority of the ones I read felt that it was this, that he's writing to the Jews, so in our context, to religious people, and, and in either case, it, and in my mind, it, I'm not sure it really matters, because in either case, what he's doing is, is dealing with a group of people who would look at those in the culture and say, you know what, I'm not perfect, but I'm not them. Got it? You, you, not only do you know people like this, you're probably like that. I, I may be bad, but I didn't lock up three gals in the basement for 10 years. I, I'm, I may be bad, but you don't see me out killing people. I may take paper clips and pens, ballpoint pens home from the office, but that's all. Well, here's the problem, the Bible says. You're Bernie Madoff without any imagination. You just steal paper clips, okay? <laughs> that's your problem. And here's what he's saying. The, the Bible teaches that we're all sinners, that our natural flinch is to deflect. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. You're sitting and you're passing judgment, and you're without excuse, for you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. It may be a variation of it. It may not be as extreme in human understanding. There's a, uh, Paul, or Jesus is teaching in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 1, maybe the most popular verse in all the culture, do not judge lest you be judged. And then he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't notice the log that's in your own? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own? You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first. Now, now get a word picture here, get it, and see, see this guy walking around, or gal walking around with this giant log coming out of their eye, and they're looking as far as they can see to find somebody with a speck in theirs. And many commentators would suggest to even take this further, this log, this speck is a flick of the log. It's the same thing. You look around, and, and you've always had it for gossips. You can't stand them. And oftentimes that's because what? You're a gossip. He said, here's what you're doing in chapter 2 to you people. He's saying, you look at these others, and you're judging them, and in doing so, you're condemning yourself. Because what you're acknowledging is, you know there's a standard. There's a basis upon which you judge. And you tend to be harsh as you judge them. I find it true in my own life. The one person I give a benefit of the doubt is me. Uh, I was uh, raised Catholic grade school, high school, college. So elementary school, I was taught by a group of ladies. It, we talk about branding. They were the most misbranded group of people that's ever existed. They were called the Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> and they didn't get mercy, didn't understand mercy, but I endured that, okay? And then I went to a, a, a very strict high school. And grading was done this way. 93 to 100 was an A. Uh, 85 to 93 was a B. If you got a 92.99999, that's a B. Okay? If your dad argued long enough for you, it might put a plus after it. Uh, 78, I think, to 85 was a C. 70 to 78 was a D. And if you got less than, than, than 70, you're a moron. They took you out back and beat you. Okay? Now, that was high school. I went to college. I was not, I got to college and I was not prepared for college. Not academically, I never studied. I don't remember ever taking a book home in my entire high school career. I never read a book cover to cover until my junior year of college. So I wasn't prepared academically. In fact, I remember meeting with my academic advisor. So this is your you know, orientation. And I met with uh, this lady, and she took me through a bunch of stuff. And she said, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, what grade point average do you need to get out of here? And she said, 2.0. And it was the first time in my life I had a goal. Okay, So, so now I've got this. Uh, I took a test. I don't remember what it was. It, was. it was early on, first week or so. And I knew I did poorly. I, I just knew. I, I just knew. I didn't study. I didn't prepare. You know, no, I couldn't get anybody sitting by me that I could see. Uh, I knew I did poorly. So my, my, my test comes back, and it said 72 A. Well, I was introduced to a new concept. And the new concept was what? Grading on a curve. I said, this is amazing. <laughs> Where has this been my entire life? So, so here's what I did. I looked around and I realized well, that, that I'm an A student, not because I've earned an A. I'm an A student because I'm hanging around with a lot of really stupid people. <laughs> and I'm the brightest of the stupid people. So all of a sudden, it, it became this is the mission. Not just to take a class, 
but make sure you took it with dumb people. <laughs> and, and, and that became the thing, and, and that became a hallmark. That's what Paul's saying here. You guys are very proud of yourself because you look around and say, I'm not them. When I was in eighth grade, I'm from uh, uh, Davenport, Iowa. Anybody from Iowa? Where are you from? Cherokee. My cousin was Greg Moore. Does that mean anything? He was in the high school at Cherokee. <laughs> Wouldn't expect it, but you figure it's a long shot. You never know. But I'm an Iowa guy. I love Iowa. Idiots out wandering around. Uh, I owe the world an apology. I've heard them all. I love them. I love Iowa. Uh, I go back every fall for an Iowa football game to go to historic Kinnick Stadium. I love it. Well, Iowa, I'm on Davenport, is if you can get in your mind, I don't know why you'd be able to do this, an outline of the state of Iowa. There's a little hump on it, and it's the only place where the Mississippi River runs east and west. That's Davenport. And across the river, uh, when I was in eighth grade, one of the Catholic schools opened up their gym on the first Sunday night of the month, and we went over there for a dance. And so I'm going over there. I don't know anything about dancing, and it seems like something you're supposed to do, and awkward and don't know. And about every 20 minutes, they had a special dance. And at the special dance, so you'd be dancing. Okay? You'd be just dancing. Well, like this. You just dance. And then... Let's say you're dancing, and four guys would come. They'd hold hands around the couple, and then the girl had to pick one of the four guys to dance with. Well, if you're a fragile juvenile, this is not the game to be playing. Okay? <laughs> so, I mean, it's a night of rejection for me. So I go home, and I'm pretty good at figuring out a system. So I go home, and I realize that the, <laughs> the next month when we went over for the dance, then when they said, all right, all right, we're ready for our special dance, it was essential for me to find three guys uglier than me. Because <laughs> this is totally superficial. Those that say, you know, girls really like a sense of humor. Girls really like uh, conversation. They don't. This is totally based on I'm going to look at you. What am I going to pick? I'm not going to pick the doofus over here. I'm going to pick the best looking guy. Well, all of a sudden, I could be standing with three guys and be rejected, or three other guys and get accepted. See, how, doesn't, that re, doesn't that resonate with you when you hear that? That's exactly what chapter 2, verse 1 is. These guys are saying, listen, we're bad, and we're guilty, but we're not as guilty, we're not as bad as those around you. We're not as bad as those guys over there. The, the first word in verse 1 is therefore. Therefore, you're without excuse. Now, that sounds similar to what you read in chapter 1, verse 18, 19, and 20, where his conclusion is, you can look around, verse 20, you can see God's individual attributes and his divine power, and they're clearly seen and they're understood so that you're without excuse. Here's what he's saying. Any person anywhere at any time can walk out, look at the sky, and know there's a God. Yet there's all this creation, and there's all this order, and, and, it, and, it, and it demands a God, and, and he says it's not a God, this is very important, not a God who manufactures but a God who creates. You and I potentially could manufacture uh, uh, somebody, probably a name on this. Yeah, there is, but I can't read it. There, there's, somebody manufactured this piano. 
uh, they took the wires and the wood. Uh, they took the, uh, what do you call those? What are they? Hinges. I didn't say I was good at this. Hinges. They took the ivory. They took, the, they took all of this, individual parts, and, and they assembled them. But they didn't create the wood. God didn't manufacture. God creates. And he says, look around you. And we know that every day the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So as I begin to understand that, the awesomeness of God becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So you're without excuse. In fact, look, look at the phrase in verse 18. He said, they suppress the truth. The idea there is to be actively engaged holding down, to, to, to suppress it. You have to engage to do that. You become ungodly and unrighteous in an active way. I have two daughters, and each daughter has four kids. So I have eight grandkids. The oldest is seven. So it goes seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, two weeks. I notice that my kids have bought their kids toys, but not like the ones they had. Uh, they had a toy. This was the worst toy. It was the popcorn popper toy. You know that toy? Pop, 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 pop. I hated that. My mom gave him that. Okay? And then uh, their other grandma gave him a jack-in-the-box. Got it? Do, and and my, my grandkids don't have... And, and, and the jack-in-the-box springs out, and it's perfect because it keeps them busy for an hour because they don't have the dexterity and the talent to get it back in there. I can't do it. They're done. They're frustrated. Well, then Sarah one day realized that she could hold that down, and it would go. This is not good. And so one morning, this is true, one morning Sarah got up, she's looking around, and she says, Jack, Jack. I said, honey, it's the weirdest thing. Someone broke in last night, <laughs> didn't take the television, didn't take the money, but boy, they wanted that jack on the box. Now, here's the image that should always stick with you in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Her holding down that lid, that's the, that's the word that's expressed there. You have to actively suppress it around you. Because you've got to look all, that's why he says, professing to be wise, they became fools, because all you've got to do is look around and you know there's a God. Now he says in chapter 2, verse 1, that you're without excuse. That when you judge, here's what you're saying. You're, you're judging. You're judging those people by a standard. So you're saying you know right and wrong, but even whatever standard you use, it doesn't matter. You don't fulfill it. I can go to the most primitive place in the world, and they have some code of ethics, and he's saying even there you violate it. You, you look at those people and you say, I would never do that. I'd never kill anyone. But you take your tongue and you do a character assassination. That's what he's saying. You condemn yourself. You do exactly the same thing. There's two fundamental things that are at play in this process. In this process, as we get to verse 2, there's two things. Number one, we tend to underestimate God. And number two, we underestimate our sin. Verse two, 
we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We get it. We get that God judges those things and we say, God, get them. We fail to understand that what we're really saying is, God, get us. We're guilty of the same thing. Or do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and you do the same thing yourself, you think you're going to escape judgment? We underestimate the holiness of God. We somehow don't get the idea that when God says, don't do it, he, he really means this. We shift the standard. We want God to grade on a curve and to give ourselves the, the benefit of the doubt in the midst of this. And, and then we even look at our sin, and we look at our sin and say it's not as bad. So let's say you're driving to Tucson, and you get to Picacho Peak, the westernmost uh, Battle of the Civil War. You get to Picacho Peak, and you're tooling along, and all of a sudden, and you, and you pull over, and the guy said, hey, uh, do you know why I stopped you? And I'm thinking one thing, but I'm going to say, no, not really. Well, how fast were you going? I was going 80. Well, what's the speed limit? 75. Do you know why I stopped you? No. Well, here's why I stopped you. You were going 80, and the speed limit 75. And inside, here's what you're saying. Why don't you go and catch a real criminal? And he's saying, I did. That's the tension here. That's what he's saying. You're constantly moving and saying, listen, I, I, God, I don't mind that you judge the really bad sin, but I hope you understand that, that, that I'm not one of them. You chronically give yourself the benefit of the doubt, but Paul says in, in verse 2, God rightly judges. Romans chapter 9, verse 14, there's no injustice with God. There's a whole group of people in our culture who talk a lot about others who develop what they call an entitlement mentality. The idea that somehow I deserve this. And they look down on it. Here's what I've discovered. Every person I've ever met has an entitlement mentality. We think we deserve, which by very definition we can't, because it's unmerited favor, we think we deserve grace. We think we deserve mercy. God says, listen, you may not be locking girls in the basement for 10 years, but you know what? Your heart's just as wicked as theirs. That's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. In, in chapter 5, he's got this pattern he does, this symmetry. He said, here's what you've heard, but I say to you. So he said, here's what you've heard. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. And everybody's going around saying, you know what? That's perfect because I haven't. I, I've never been with somebody other than my spouse. I've never been unfaithful. You've heard it said you couldn't, shouldn't commit adultery, and you say to yourself, that's great, but Jesus says it's deeper than that if you've looked at another in your heart, you've sinned. All of a sudden, I went from I never have to I can't go to the mall. 
All of a sudden, I went from, I never have to, I need to pluck out my eyes. I'm not going to make it through communion. I'm not going to get anywhere. That's what he's saying. He said, to understand the depth of your sin, to, to allow God to be God, to let him get bigger and bigger and bigger and see his holiness and his righteousness. One of my, my favorite sayings, and unfortunately, I probably wear people out with it, but it was the French philosopher Voltaire who said, God made man in his own image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. That, that God made man in his image, which means you have a, you have a transcendent component to you. Uh, it means, although it's hard to imagine, that you have personality. Uh, you're, you're human. You're above all creation. You're made in that image. You're not God, but you have some characteristics like him. But now we turn around and we create a God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you look at this and you rightly assess that God should judge those people and punish them, but you fail to understand that he needs to, to punish you. That's what we do. We put God in a box. We limit him. We don't allow him to, to be God, the creator. He's the creator. Therefore, he's allowed to do whatever he wants to do with the creation. And he's going to judge, doesn't it make sense that he would tell you the rules? And he's saying, to those he's told the rules, they violate him. But to those who are totally oblivious to it, they violate them. Now, it's designed, and, and I, if I've done this well, and if the Holy Spirit is working, that's more important, there should be a sense of, of oh my, at this point. There, there should be a sense of, I'm in this and I'm in deep. And as I said before, your flinch is going to be to try to fix it. But you can't fix this. The wage of sin is death. What you deserve is judgment. You, you, you deserve hell. Verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He said you take lightly. Literally, the idea here is to take lightly, is to think something down, to underestimate. You are taking for granted the kindness, the forbearance, the patience of God, the gentleness of God. The forbearance has with it the idea of God's withholding judgment. He's patient in this process. He said, here's what you're doing. You're looking at God's grace and mercy, and you've miscalculated that either some way, either he doesn't care about your sin, boys will be boys, he's lowered the standard of your sin, or you can deduce that because he hasn't judged you yet, he isn't going to judge Forbearance and, and mercy, patience are a picture of God that he's demonstrated all through, listen to this now, all through the scripture and especially in the Old Testament. We think of the Old Testament and people say, that God of the Old Testament, blood and guts and a judgmental God, I don't want the God of the Old Testament. Well, FYI, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's God. And we see it from the very beginning. If we go back to Genesis 3, God is created. God has created man in his image, 
He pronounces the first malediction in all of Scripture. It's not good for man to be alone. He creates woman. He, he's given them a restriction. They were in paradise, right? Why was it paradise? One law, no lawyers. So it's perfect, okay? So they're in paradise. But there they are, and here's what he said. Paradise, okay? Trees and fruit all over. Eat whatever you want except that one tree. I don't want you eating from that. And sometimes we miss that. Uh, Sandy and I, our one-year anniversary is uh, next Saturday. So we're going to go over to Coronado to celebrate. And I'm going to teach priority living on Thursday. And I'm going to drive down and pick up Sandy. And we go, here's the way we go. We go over and down through Maricopa. And then over the Hump Highway, I call it, if you've been on it. And then we pop out at Gila Bend. So now you're going by Gila Bend. That's the dairy. And then you go by the dairy, and then pretty soon you are in the middle of nothing. Zero. And oftentimes, at least in my mind, maybe yours, when you think of God saying, don't eat from that tree, you're thinking, here's barren, one tree, and this is going to be a real test. It is a real test, but that isn't the test. The first question in the Bible, the first question mark, is the serpent saying to Adam and Eve, did God really say that? That's the battle in your life. Did God, did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Now, here's a subtle distinction. I, I think this is a huge point. God is not a God that says, I'm just sitting in heaven looking for people to pounce on. That was Satan's portrayal of him. God said, eat anything you want, not that one. Satan said, is, did he tell you not to eat that? And there is all of the battle of mankind. Am I going to trust God and his word, or am I going to trust myself? Because God had said, the day you eat from me, you're going to surely die. And they ate, but they didn't die. They certainly died spiritually. Life is transformed for everybody, because now they're alienated from God, they're alienated from each other, and the others that will be in the world, and they're alienated from themselves. But God, in great mercy, provided covering for them. Here you go. God floods the earth and kills all but eight people. So, so you can look at that and say, what kind of God is that? Well, let's review. God looks at all men and sees they're worthy of judgment. And he's perfectly judge in, perfectly a judge in justice in, in zapping them all right there. But he decides that he's going to have Noah and, and close family build an ark. So, so imagine that place out there in the desert outside of Gila Bend. May, many scholars believe at this point it had never rained. Imagine driving out there, and, and Noah's out there with his family building an ark, and you'd walk by, and what are you doing, Noah? I'm building an ark. And you understand, it's five hours to the beach. I know, but God told me to do this, and he told me to tell you to repent. How long does it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years. For 120 years, God's saying through Noah, in this example, repent, Repent, repent. Finally, God said, judgment is here. Here's what he's saying. He said, here's our flinch. Our flinch is to think because God hasn't judged us yet, he doesn't care, or he's not going to. He said, here's the, mis here, here's the miscalculation you make. It's verse 4. 
You think lightly of his forbearance and kindness. And you know that the goodness is to lead you to repentance. God is patient and he's waiting and he's waiting for you to respond. But it's not infinite patience. I uh, remember, as I said, I came from a Catholic background. We didn't pray out loud. I mean, if we prayed out loud, it would be something like, uh, Tom, you want to pray? Our Father, who's art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay. Well, we didn't pray. First time I'm in a prayer group, as a circle, guy's sitting here, I'm to his right, and he said, let's pray. And I learned two things this night. Let's pray. And he starts to his left, we'll pray around. Well, the first guy, Father, thank you for your love and your kindness, what you're doing to our people here and in our church. Amen. The next guy, Father, thank you for the people in the church, but the people in the city and the state, what you're doing in the city and the state. Next guy, Father, thank you for the country we're in, the country you've given us. Well, pretty soon it's, it's Father, in all the galaxy. So here's the thing. You don't want to go last, because by the time it gets to you, all the good prayers are taken. <laughs> and this is how you know. Next time you're in a group, listen to how often you'll hear. Father, I just echo what everybody said. Well, the guy to my right this night, here's what he prays. Father, thank you for your infinite patience. And I thought, whoa, God is patient, but it's not infinite patience. He waited 120 years, but he said, that's it. And his whole point in waiting is waiting for a response. This is to lead you to repentance, to turn away from your sin and to turn to his provision. So in your life, God may have waited 18 years or 28 years or 58 years, 90 years. He is not going to wait forever. And he says to you, don't you make the miscalculation that somehow because you haven't been judged and faced hell yet that you never are going to. Verse 5, and we close. Because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is a patient God, but it's not infinite patience. Here's what this verse tells us. It tells us about wrath. It tells us a lot. Number one, he tells us that if we don't repent, we will perish under the wrath of God. He tells us that this wrath of God is based on our stubbornness, and that wrath of God will be revealed. We've seen it revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? I always thought they were Marvin Gaye's backup singers, but, but they're not. They're a couple that are in the church in Acts chapter 5. They bring a gift. They present it to, to Peter. They lie about the extent of their gift, and God strikes them dead. And the judgment of God is that swift. That should be the judgment on you. When you signed that income tax and you knew it wasn't right, your little hand should have withered up and you died right there. When you told that lie, small or big, your tongue should have rotted out and exploded in your head and you die right there. But it doesn't happen. Why? Because God is waiting. But his wrath will be revealed. We've seen it throughout history. The, the most dramatic revelation of God's wrath is the agony of Christ on the cross. He says also, you deserve this wrath. See what he says? You're storing up this wrath. And it seems to be proportionate to your sin. 
the more you know, but it seems that the more strictly you'll be judged. And this wrath is certain. It will come. It's coming in the day of wrath and the day of revelation. And the wrath is just. Our problem, as we look at ourselves, is to somehow self-justify our sin. And he's saying that's not it. Here's the case. And we close. We've got uh, six minutes. Is that God is saying, all of you in this room, in the world, but let's stay in this room. And rather than leave it the room, you, you deserve punishment. You deserve the wrath of God. Uh, I, I said I have eight grandkids. My daughter Haley has uh, four, and her second oldest is a, a boy named Yale. And Yale's just this wonderful, Sandy and I are laughing at Yale all the time. Not in a harsh way, but he just, he's just this, he's, he's not just all boy, he's just all human. He's very, extraordinarily competitive. So if you're at breakfast and breakfast comes, he'll look you in the eye, he'll grab his fork and say, I can eat mine faster than you. Uh, Sandy took him to his cousin's uh, ballet recital. So he's watching this, and he said to Sandy, who's winning? <laughs> and Sandy said, well, there's nobody winning. Well, 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 well who's going to did Reagan do well? Yeah, he did well. Will she get a prize? Well, no. They're not keeping score in this. Why would you do this? <laughs> Yale grabbed a crayon, blue marker, went out on the couch. The, guys, the kids have a couch that's almost white, marked all over it. But, but I... And then, because Haley doesn't have to be Sherlock Holmes then, marked all over it, and then he signed it, Yale. <laughs> so he's competitive and not very bright, all, all at the same time. Well, I got a text from Haley the other day, and she said, Yale just asked me if he's going to go to hell. Now, at that point, this five-year-old understood judgment and some level of punishment and justice, and he understood sin, and he understood, apparently, through education, he understood that that's totally fair. The question is, do you? And, and, and the answer that Haley gave him is the same answer for you. Haley said, the Bible teaches that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be delivered. And God is waiting and God is patient, waiting for you to respond. Will you? There's a whole group of you that have. In a minute, you'll have the opportunity, technically in three minutes, to celebrate communion. And communion is for those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior. There may be some of you that have never taken that step. Here's what it means. Here's how we deal with this at redemption. We don't ask you to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card. This is a transaction between you and God. And once you say to God, God, I know I'm a sinner. I've given up. I repent. I'm turning from that. I know I can't fix it. And I'm embracing your provision, Christ and Christ alone. You mean it's as simple as that? Yeah, it's called, here, this is cool. This will be your new favorite word. It's called grace. So what Paul's teaching us in these five verses is that the problem in the world is not them out there. The problem is you. 
And you need to stop comparing yourself with everyone else. And in the process of this, giving yourself the benefit of the doubt. And you need to not confuse God's patience with somehow either his impotence or the certainty that he'll deal with you. One scholar writes this. The most hard-hearted sinners are not outside the church. They're in the pews. The most hardened type of sinners are faithful church attenders who continually have sinful, bad, condemning, critical attitudes. They have successfully deceived themselves into a state of religious respectability among their peers. You see it in the church. And you really see it in good Bible-teaching churches. They kind of look out there, and there's a sense, especially as they understand that God saved them and redeemed them, and they appropriately see the world's lostness around them. And he said, your response is not to stand and condemn, but to proclaim the message to them. And as you do, you understand your own sinfulness. There should be this wave of thankfulness continually in your life. This sense of worship that's not inspired by being in a place, but it's inspired by letting God be God in the context of your sinfulness and realizing that in spite of what you deserved, God gave you grace and mercy, not justice. Again, if you're those that, that maybe have never responded, or you listen to this and you're more confused now, you thought you were fine, now you're all messed up, well, there'll be some guys in the front of the room here after the service, and they'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. But now Sean's going to come, lead us in our time of response to this. So let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you as your people, and we are aware of your holiness and of our sin. And our hearts are filled with joy for the covering you give us in the blood of Christ. God, use this response time for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.